Hey everyone, welcome to the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski. Uh, today we've got a really fascinating, exciting conversation. Uh, we started off just talking about communities, but then we it morphed into a whole bunch of really, really interesting discussions all over the place. Um, so before we jump into that, you know, the Recovery Executive Podcast is brought to you by Circle Social Inc., experts in strategic growth and marketing for centers. You can always find out more about us at circlesocialinc.com. Um, today we're speaking with Zach Schnitzer of Maryland Addiction Recovery center and just a fascinating and amazing conversation i mean we cover everything from you know helping families understand how extended care works and how to pay for it for long-term models of 90 days plus um, and they've been very successful with that maintaining a strong census for the past two to three years uh, even with all the dips in the industry they've been staying strong because of their community relationships because of their relationships with families because of their relationships with other centers we get into a wider conversation about how to collaborate and make collaboration work for everyone and, and we even talk about uh, some of the business ends of, of building a smart center and program that has that long-term sustainable focus from a very entrepreneurial standpoint. You know, I think both Zach and I have a good perspective on what works and what doesn't um, for programs and centers in terms of building something that's going to be here, you know, 10, 15 years from now, discussing the trends in the field and the industry that we're seeing, um, how you need to meet those trends. Uh, so really just had a, a great time, a um, lot of fascinating information and nuggets for you in there. So I hope you enjoy it. All right, let's get to it. Hey, Zach, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Nick. I appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity to, to, you know, share kind of what we're doing and our experience and kind of helping out with it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited I'm to have you on. You know, I see you on LinkedIn a lot. I'm on LinkedIn a lot, and you're always posting some good stuff. Um, and recently you had a post specifically around communities that I was interested in. But before we get into that, can you uh, tell us a bit about yourself and your center? Uh, sure. Absolutely. Um, so uh, we started Maryland Addiction Recovery Center a little under five years ago. Um, I'm someone that's in long-term recovery myself, um, found recovery in 2007. I'm from uh, outside the Baltimore area, uh, got <laughs> numerous treatment stays early on, and then around that time uh, went to a residential, ended up in uh, Delray Beach, Florida in a recovery house and doing some extended care. Um, lived there for a number of years in the local recovery community, uh, and then my wife and I moved back up north as we started having children and um, recognized a need in this area, more so in the uh, mid-Atlantic area, uh, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, um, for some of the more robust, comprehensive, uh, long-term extended care uh, treatment needs. Um, there is a number of uh, really high quality long-term facilities like that in Florida at the time, really kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, before South Florida had the reputation of being at least what it is now as it's getting cleaned up. Um, you know, more for the young adult failure to launch population, uh, long-term care, life skills, uh, getting back to school, getting back to work, kind of really, you know, setting themselves up for long-term sustainable recovery, reinventing their lives and so forth. Um, one of the things that I saw firsthand when I was down uh, in Florida was there was a really large number of people from different areas of the country, especially in the Northeast, that you know had gone down for treatment and stayed down and so forth. There was not a huge amount of people from the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area um, for whatever reason. I think one of it is it's just a very homegrown state. People don't really leave, which was also my experience. It took me, you know, eight or, or twelve different treatment experiences locally 
um, before I was willing to even leave the area. For, it's just kind of a mindset locally here, I think. So what we saw was it allowed people to kind of stay in the area, engage the families kind of in that treatment experience, um, and kind of set them up for what they needed. So we started about five years ago. We started uh, as a community-based intensive outpatient program with a um, with a five-year plan to to kind of create a robust extended care program. Um, we kind of achieved that in about year two. Uh, the reason that that happened was we were really listening to, and kind of as you mentioned, the local community and what we were hearing from our patients, uh, from our families, from our staff, and from the local communities of, of lack of services in the area. Um, so it really kind of sped up the process in terms of we needed this housing piece, we needed kind of the long-term vocational life skills piece. Um, so we got there at about year two, year two and a half, and we've just kind of grown in a little bit from there um, and really just tried to, not that you ever get to that point, but really try to perfect um, the services that we're offering um, in terms of clinical and psychiatric and medical services. So you guys have a pretty long-term care program. We were talking a little bit before we jumped on here, and you know you guys do 90-day extended care, um, which is longer than a lot of models these days, just from an insurance reimbursement perspective often. But it also sounds like you're very focused on the local community. Um, so in terms of people coming in, you know, do you have a lot from farther outside the state, or is it really just within you know a radius around the center? So we, yeah, so we have, so we have. Uh, the way that we've kind of set it up is it's a 90 day minimum stay for anyone. If they, if they enter that level of care, right. And we both know terminology in, in behavioral health care, especially addiction treatment, it really doesn't mean anything. You say extended care, you say aftercare, and it could mean 17 different things. Right. So um, I kind of use comprehensive extended care as an understanding of what that model is in terms of two separate campuses created for a, clinical reasoning, right? It was originally, there was a, there's a clinical rationale of why that happened, right? It wasn't as it happens now. You hear a lot, it's people to get around licensing. Um, it's an easier way of opening, but initially when it was created years ago, there was a clinical rationale for it, right? It was meant to be post residential, post 30 days, um, and allowing for longer term care to treat, you know, obviously a chronic illness. So we do a 90 day minimum. A lot of people stay in our continuum, for nine months to a year, if not longer, if they stay in the local area, if they're from outside the local area, or if they are from here, um, if they access that service. We've tried to also set it up where it's somewhat like a healthcare system. So someone that needs services can access them based on their needs. So you can access from an IOP level and step up or step down as needed. You can access an outpatient PHP level, or, or you can access the extended care, which includes the residential piece. Um, and kind of move throughout that need. Just like if you had a, you know, you have a, a hospital system, right? You have your primary care, but if you need to see a specialist, you see somebody within that healthcare system and you see them as needed. Um, so we try to do that to the best of our ability. Um, but yeah, so I'd say 65 to 70% of our patient population comes from the Maryland, DC, Virginia, Delaware, Pennsylvania area. Um, the rest of them are really coming to us uh, from, you know, close relationships and partnerships that we have with residential facilities kind of across the country that know the services that we offer and are specifically sending people to us for those services. Um, 
but the yeah the majority of of patients are coming from in really that you know four state and DC region. Now, um, before we kind of jump into the community stuff, I'm sure people are interested. You know, you have you were saying you had a pretty strong cash pay basis, and when you're doing an extended care model, you know, insurance is going to cover all of that. So I'm assuming that you have a pretty good system in place for talking to people up front, you know, before they get involved, saying, hey, you know, here's where expectations are in terms of time frame. And here's, you know, probably the expectation that you're going to be paying this out of pocket and arranging that before um, people actually correct. join the program. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we, you know, um, we put a lot of thought into kind of how we set we, our, we, our facility. We call Mark for short because we didn't really <laughs> we didn't really think about the the mouthful of Maryland Addiction Recovery Center. So. <laughs> When we set it up, what we try to do is look at some of the issues in the industry and some of the barriers um, in terms of access to treatment and some of the issues that come up for families, right? Because one of the biggest issues, take out the, the bad actors and the poor treatment experiences, but one of the, the major issues what you have is, you know, as a result of that are, are really bad experiences that families have, right? So some of the things that you're seeing now regularly is, you know, oh, my son went to, you know, 30-day treatment went to a residential facility and three months later I'm getting a bill for, you know, the balance of that, right? What, what's that? Fifteen, eighteen, twenty thousand $20,000 that I was unaware of. Or, you know, obviously a larger issue is the urinalysis billing and I'm getting, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in terms of, of charges. So what we try to do in terms of that, we know that we know that extended care is, is, for lack of a better term, kind of a hard sell, right? Um, the majority of people that are coming to us are coming to us uh, from you know, at minimum a detox, but ideally from a residential setting. So they've been in treatment for 30 days. And working with that facility, we're explaining to them, okay, well, you need longer term and here's why, right? Besides the basic, you know, the basic understanding of, again, chronic illness, long-term care. Um, but in terms of what their clinical needs are, they need this long-term piece that includes kind of the social setting, the vocational or, or the re-entering into a, an academic setting, um, they need that long-term support. What we've tried to do is take away kind of the barriers for the families in terms of some of the issues that they have on the back end. So what we do is we explain all this up front. We explain the reasoning and why they need this this long-term, you know, this long-term care. And then what we do is we break down all the finances with them up front. So we obviously do a risk assessment on our end in terms of the insurance, what we assume um, the reimbursement will be based on our experience, and relationships with the insurance companies. And then we give them a pricing upfront, um, all inclusive based on what that would look like. So here's the 90 day minimum. This is what would, it would be per month for those 90 days. And then moving forward, if they stay in that continuum, if they stay at this level of care, if they jump, if they, you know, lower down to a IOP level or an outpatient level, they're just seeing an individual therapist, whatever that looks like, we break all of that down in the front end to give it to them in writing. So they understand and they're never, you know, they're never going to be surprised as a bill. We've never sent anyone um, a charge that they were unaware of. Um, so we try to make that easier for, for the families. One of the things that, you know, one of the things that we tell everyone is, as a society, we understand that, again, disease, chronic illness really needs long-term care. And that long-term care could look a number of different ways. It could be with one provider. It could be with multiple providers, whatever that looks like. But when somebody calls us, um, you know, whether it's a, a potential patient or a family, what we try to do on the front end is really educate them and explain to them, this is what you need to prepare yourselves 
in terms of what the next year, if not longer, of your life or your loved one's life is going to look like. And that includes treatment services, that includes financial investment, that includes emotional investment, that includes, if it's a family member, your investment, you know, in the ongoing treatment, um, to kind of give them all that information on the front end. And it's going pretty well so far. People typically understand if you take the time to educate them, and we try to take a stance of whether they're going to come here or they're going to go to another facility, it's clearly needed. They need to have that education of why this is the case. And if they don't choose to do that, if they don't choose to engage in, you know, a treatment center's recommendation to come here or any type of aftercare services, if there is a, a next time and they end up in treatment, there's a more, there's a better understanding of that person or that family's, you know, experience of like why it didn't work the first time and why that investment needs to be made. That's great. And you guys have been successful with that model. I mean, you know, you're not struggling from a census standpoint or anything like that. So, you know, I think it's important to point out for a lot of centers that this works. Yeah, we've, I mean, we've been, I mean, uh, you know, I don't know. We've been fairly successful. Our census has um, has stayed very steady the last, you know, two and a half, three years. Um, I think a lot of that is is the work that we're doing on the front end in terms of, you know, admissions. There is a ton of case management that goes on. Um from our from our admissions team and from our business development team and that's case management with the patient that's case management with the family that's communication and collaboration between referral sources whether it's a a local you know practitioner whether it's a residential facility there's a lot of work that goes on, on the front end and a lot of that is the education but what it does is it really sets people up for an understanding and an expectation of what it's going to look like so they're they're pretty much invested and they understand right it, it's not one of these we try to educate um, patients and families, but we also take a lot of time, and a lot of facilities are really good at this, but a lot of them aren't. Um, we really try to re- we try to educate, you know, detox, residential, your traditional kind of 30-day facilities of, you know, initially we get calls, and we still get calls like that of, hey, so-and-so patient is discharging back to your area three days from now. Like, I don't, there's not much we can do with that, right? Maybe they get here, maybe they don't, but we try to educate them of, if you identify a patient in the first week that meets criteria for longer term for an extended care for something similar to what we offer. Let us help you with that, right? Let us help you with outreaching the family, have the family outreach us. You know, we'll, we invite anyone regardless of where they are, come in, meet us, understand what you're doing, um, understand what the treatment's going to look like, understand the expectations that you should have of us, that we have of your loved one, that we have of you, right? Um, that work takes several weeks most of the time. Um, so we try to do that as best we can. And a lot of facilities are great at that and do that. And then some aren't, um, for whatever reason, I always, you know, I, I try to use, and it's not an apples to apples comparison, obviously, right? The analogy is not a hundred percent accurate, but if you look at it from, uh, from an understanding of cancer, right? Let's say you are, let's say you're a mom or a dad that lives in Ohio, right? Or Indiana or Florida or whatever. And you're diagnosed with a specific type of cancer. And someone says, hey, you know, the person that you need to see, the best specialist that you can go to for whatever reason is Johns Hopkins in Maryland, right? Um, That mother, that father, that family, that loved one, what they would do is they would research. They would then take the time that they need to go with their loved one to meet the specialist, right, at Hopkins, see the hospital, do everything they could to understand the treatment. Why are we doing these things? What are, what is it? Why are you doing, why is this the treatment regimen? Well, it's, this is the best chance of success that we've seen. This is why we're doing what we're doing. 
they would understand it. They would take that time and then make the decision of, okay, I'm going to do that with my loved one. In addiction treatment, it doesn't happen. There's a Google search. We see a website. We make one phone call, and we send you know our 19-year-old daughter across the country you know, to a place that we've never seen or never met or really don't understand. So it's really trying to change that paradigm. Um, and it's again, it's not apples to apples, but move it towards a true understanding of if this was any other medical illness, if this was any other piece of healthcare, right? you would take that time. So we think it's our responsibility to try to educate people into learning why that's necessary. Yeah, yeah, that's that's excellent. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's something that we see consistently with our clients and just across the field in general. But there is this mistaken, I think, understanding that there's this like one call admission process and that did used to happen, um, but it's not nearly as much anymore you know it is moving to a standard healthcare. people are doing a lot more research they're comparing a lot more centers it used to be one or two now it's five to seven right um so you have to really get the family involved there's a much longer process of engagement with potential families than there was even two years ago and what you guys are doing on kind of walking them through the finances like that is a huge piece and so many centers make the mistake of trying to sell their services as free, right? Your insurance is going to pay for all or most of it, you know, so they don't build the trust that they need because they're trying to do this free gimmick, which isn't the reality in today's insurance environment most of the time. No, not at all. I mean, Pete, and that's, you know, we've always had a, an issue with, with a lot of facilities, um, and a lot of them are very good at this, and, and they, they do it right, and a lot of them aren't. And I think it's, like you said, a parent calls up or someone calls up, and it's like, oh, well, we're in network with, you know, whatever, United Blue Cross. So your insurance covers our stay. But what they don't explain to the family is that, well, typically what will happen is we'll usually get 14 days covered here, right? So you're going to owe the rest of the time if they stay that time. If we're a 28-day facility, your insurance is only going to cover, you know, half of that, which then the responsibility is going to be on you. And either they don't explain that or they just bring them in and then send a bill later on. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that go into that and that, that, again, that it, it continues to give black eyes to our industry. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, it, it, it's kind of, it's just something that that's happened, you know, for years, but if in my experience, right, if you take the time to explain those things, you build trust, right? If you take the time to explain those things to a family or to a patient, not just the finances, but everything else involved, right? Why we're doing what we're doing, why the clinical services, what it's really going to look like, right? Because I know a lot of facilities that will keep people or, or ideally want to keep people long-term, right? But they'll say, okay, well, we'll bring you in for 30 days or for 28 days or for 14 days, and then they just try to keep them while they're there. If you explain to people up front on the front end why these are necessary services, again, you build that trust, you do that work on the front end, and you actually get a better patient. Right. Right. They're actually engaged. It's a better case. They, there's an understanding. The family is invested. The family knows why you're doing what you're doing. And you're not getting those, you know, those AMA calls of, you know, 14 days in and the patient calls the family and the family's had like one or two calls with a therapist and the therapist is saying, oh, yeah, you know, Johnny's doing great. He's showing up to group. He's engaged. They're not really explaining. Well, they're not explaining to the family what you should really be expecting is a call from Johnny. <laughs> right? Because he's, this is typically what's going to happen. We started dealing with some major issues, right? We had some, some major trauma that we're starting to touch on, and he's going to start freaking out and wanting to go. But you kind of take down that, that, that AMA rate or that, that freak out 
<laughs> from the patient and the family isn't getting these calls and then dealing with the anxiety and the fear of that, right? You really get a better case to work. Everyone understands, everyone is invested, and they become, you know, for lack of a better term, better successes, right? And I don't necessarily mean better successes in terms of they stay sober for the rest of their lives or, you know, they, they don't have issues later on, whatever that looks like, but you have a case. Somebody is actually open to dealing with their issues. The family is supportive, right? Um, you actually get can get some clinical work done. Um, if you try to fleece people on the front end, you're going to have a much harder time actually doing the clinical work that's necessary. Yeah, that's exactly it. <clears throat> you know, as I talk about constantly on this podcast, it's all about the trust, whether it's from the marketing end or the admissions end or the actual clinical program. And once that trust is broken, and that's what happens when you don't explain properly or it comes across as, you know, you're trying to swindle me out of money or something like that, you know, then you lose it and they're not going to stay in the program. They're not going to do long-term care. Right. They're not going to stay there, which is going to obviously be an issue for that program, but they're going to have a really bad experience. They're going to have a really poor treatment experience, and they're going to have the perception of that is what treatment is, right? So regardless of whether I'm going to this facility or one of a thousand other facilities, this is who the treatment field is. This is what they do, right? This is what we do. They just want us, they just want me through the door. They're just trying to get my insurance, you know, reimbursement. Um, It's, it's, we've tried to build, you know, it, it, we try to build it through, I mean, the ownership of, of, of Mark is in recovery. You know, we, we do our best and fail regularly, but we <laughs> do our best to live by certain principles. And one of those is transparency, right? Trans, transparency builds trust. Transparency in terms of every aspect of, of this, right? Um, yeah, transparency may lose you a patient that is unwilling to engage because they don't really don't want to. They're just resistant. That's the population we deal with. It, it might be... You know, it might be it might lose you a patient coming through your doors because you're upfront about the financial investment of the family and they just can't do it or they don't want to do it. Right. They've spent eight. You know, their loved one has eight other treatment experiences and they have another kid that they're paying for college and they just they're like, I don't want to invest anymore. Right. Um, Because they've had really poor experiences. It may lose you. Right. That transparency may. But it will also build the trust in you saying this is what we are. This is what we do. This is what it's going to cost. This is what it's going to look like. Um, and the ones that are invested and the ones that understand why that is and that it makes sense um, will absolutely give you the best case to work with. And typically, you'll see the best success from that. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, in so many centers, sales, call, admissions team, whatever you want to call them, are, are so poorly trained on that level of it, you know, where they're just trying to get them in for the basics and they don't go through everything with the families. But as your program is validated, as other clients that we have that operate in a similar way is validated it works and they do stay long term and even from a business perspective it ends up being more profitable because you're getting a longer term stay with patients when the families understand the financial realities the clinical realities and if it leads to greater success rates which it does i mean we know from all the research that the longer you can extend the care the better the outcomes are I mean, it's just a win-win for everybody, and so... Absolutely. And from a center's perspective, if you want to look at it from a marketing or a business development, what you have in those situations, your alumni become your best marketers, right? Your alumni becomes a huge referral piece. And that's even the alumni that, you know, we, we... You know, it's somewhat controversial, I suppose, but when you look at success rates, right, that doesn't necessarily mean sobriety. We all know that that the patient population is becoming way more complex, you know, I mean, 90%, 95% of people that come through our doors have, you know, a co-occurring disorder. 
it's not the garden variety alcoholic, right? Um, that, you know, the hopeless variety that the 12 steps deal with many, many of them are, but, but a lot of them are, you know, are dealing with mental health issues and they're self-medicating and if you can, or they have some major trauma. And if you can get that clinical piece figured out, they may be able to go drink successfully or, you know, as it's going to be in society, smoke weed. I don't know, right? We can't make that determination. We have to kind of get into the clinical piece of that. But the success is they're going to lead a high quality of life, right? They're going to lead a fairly successful life in terms of their purpose and direction, their education, their relationships, whatever that looks like, right? Um, even if a patient doesn't do well, because we know that happens. If, you, if you're transparent and you do good work on the front end in terms of once they leave, the family is still, because the family's been invested and been engaged in that treatment experience, they become a huge, you know, referral source for you because you've helped the family unit, even if the identified patient, you know, is resistant and doesn't get better. Um, so it works out for everyone on, overall <laughs> in terms of clinical casework, in terms of, a, from a business standpoint, it, it works out well, all based on that front end transparency and, and education for, you know, for, for, from your staff to, you know, basically to anyone in the community that's dealing with these issues. Yeah. Great. Uh, I hope, you know, listeners got a lot about out of that part of the conversation because it's just so important and not enough centers are, are doing it or understand um, those kind of operations. Well, it's a lot of work, right? <laughs> right. It is. It's a, it's, it's a lot of work on the front end. And again, you don't necessarily always, you're not successful in getting patients through your door. So I think some it's a very short-sighted view that a lot of people have of it. It's really much, it's a lot of this heads and beds thing, right? Just get the admission in, make sure we're getting paid on it you know, make sure we're getting the reimbursement. Whereas it's a, it's a more of a, it, it's one, it's a patient centered approach Two, it's a long-term business understanding of like, you do good work and all that other stuff will take care of itself. You do good work with the patient, the family and your, you know, your community resource and so forth. And it's better long-term for, for the health of your facility. Yep. Yeah. And that really leads us into, you know, what we were originally <laughs> talking or going to talk about was uh, the community aspect. And so a while back you had posted a piece. I know you do a lot of writing for um, Maryland Addiction and you had put a pretty strongly worded piece that you need to be involved in your community. And this is something I am a huge, huge um, proponent of. You know, I constantly stress with our clients. You know, I involve myself and my company as much as possible in the local community, in the wider um, recovery community. It's just insanely important to be making a difference across the board, not just living in the little world of our center or program. Um, so can you talk a little bit about your perspective on that and then, you know, some of the specifics of what you do over there at Maryland Addiction Recovery to get involved in the community? Sure, absolutely. So again, there's, and there's a couple pieces there. Um, I think the first and more from a general standpoint is, and, and this is just my opinion and kind of where I see the industry going, but you know, for years, this I, there was the idea of destination treatment of um, I send someone away um, for 30 days, and then either they stay there, they come back, whatever the case may be. And I think we're, that's kind of going by the wayside, right? I think that's going to continue for certain really good facilities that do really good work or that do really specialized things, right? So if you really need a, a really good trauma program, that's not going to necessarily be in your community, right? You might send someone somewhere. If you need someone that has LGBTQ issues, right, specifically that needs to know truly how to handle that population, that's not necessarily going to be in, in your backyard. But in terms of your, for lack of a better term, like your basic addiction co-occurring 
treatment facility, the way that I see it going, again, is in the future is more into this community-based healthcare system, right? A facility that you can access different levels of care. Because, you know, what happens in, in our in our field, right? Typically, someone's had issues for a while, the stigma, they're keeping it in-house, the family doesn't want to talk about it, and then we basically come to stage four. There's a, a, another crisis, and finally, someone's forcing someone or someone's ready for treatment, whatever it is. Um, but but patients come to us at stage four. The idea is we really want to get patients when they when they start out, right, on the substance use disorder, you know, spectrum, um, as soon as possible. We want to get patients before they reach stage four, so they can act. The idea is that they're going to be able to access a lower level of care early on, and then kind of step up, or they can access a higher level of care and step down. But if they need, you know, services while they're still in that continuum, they can step up. Whatever the case may be. So the idea is that I think we're going to that kind of community based. Um, based model. And I think the idea of destination treatment is is really just not going to be there in 10, 15 years, right? I mean, again, I think the really good quality centers that do really good work and that are specialized in services, absolutely they'll be there. But just your basic 30-day, the idea, you know, I don't know if it was a marketing tool by the, the addiction treatment industry years ago, or it's just it kind of fell in line with the recovery understanding of you have to leave your local area. Well, that's true, but then, like, how much work can you do on your family unit if addiction's a family disease? How are we really treating the family if they're not there, if they're not engaged the full time, right? Don't get me wrong. Family education, family weekends where they come down, like, that, that stuff's important, but that's just really scratching the surface, right? How can you really collaborate with, you know, on treating a family unit and refer that family out to other local, you know, practitioners that the family may need to see and then collaborate professionally with them to treat the whole unit if you're in, you know, two different states. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly it. We, we've talked about that quite a lot. I don't know if you ever read some of the stuff that I write, but I mean, I've been saying it for months now that the PPO model is dying, especially the destination rehab model. Um, and even if you look at it from a marketing standpoint, like Google prioritizes local search results all the time and it's mm -hmm. getting stronger Absolutely. and stronger. So even from an SEO perspective, you know, you'll always be able to do your Facebook marketing and your radio and whatever, but, um, locally searches where you know, a good amount of admissions still come in 20% for some of our clients. And it's much harder now to do anything from a national scale. Um, and then, like you said, both clinically and from a business standpoint, if you specialize, you know, if you're really well known, it's still viable. Um, but for most centers, it's not. And I, I would say in the next five years, you know, I think 10 to 15 is yeah. probably. And you might have time. a better, you might have a better read on that than I would probably. But um, no, I agree. And so, so that's, that's one piece, right? Like that's kind of how we see it going. So when we opened it, the idea was, okay, well, we want to be a community-based facility. One of the other reasons, so Sam, Sam Beerman, who's our executive director and my business partner, you know, Sam says it fairly regularly is, you know, a lot of the times you see these facilities over the last, you know, over the last decade, let's say that have opened up and they open up in, in, in communities, right? In neighborhoods and in towns and cities and communities. And then the majority of their patients, they're, again, they're bringing in from out of state. Yeah. Right. right. So the idea is the local community, it's like, there's, a, there's enough of a stigma about addiction treatment, right? There's obviously NIMBY issues, all these things that have consistently happened in our field. Right. And then we say, well, you need to, you need to welcome us because we're, we're here to treat this deadly illness. Right. And then the community says, yeah, but you're not treating us. You're not treating our family. You're not treating, you know, our children. You're not treating our employees. You're bringing in, you know, th these kids from all over the place. Right. 
So you're really not being a member of the community. So that was something that we really felt was kind of a principle that we needed to operate by um, when we opened was, and that's why we, you know, a lot of places open up with the, you know, whether it's a PHP or an IOP and a recovery house or a living piece, right? I don't, I don't personally, um, I don't, kind of a sidebar, I don't consider that true comprehensive extended care, right? Um, that's a whole nother conversation. Um, but they open up just like that because they, you know, they see that's the thing. And that's when we have beds, we can bring people in from all over the place, right? Um, we purposely opened up as an, as an IOP before having anything. And, and we slowly wanted to grow into that because we wanted to be kind of community-based. And what that was, was reaching out to a lot of the local organizations, um, local government, local police departments, a lot of the nonprofits, right? A lot of these families that have lost a loved one and have started these nonprofits. Um, here locally, we have a big uh, Jewish and especially Orthodox Jewish population. Um, they have a, a huge community-based, uh, what they call Jewish community services. There's a huge mental health and addiction piece that they have. Um, a lot of the local businesses and their EAPs and, and you know, Chamber of Commerce, all these different community-based organizations, right? And, you know, there's a number, in, in, in at least in Maryland, most counties have a recovery-oriented systems of care, right, a ROSC, where they kind of bring people together from the community. All these different organizations were something that we said, okay, well, we're going to open up our services, and then we're going to kind of engage with them and listen to them about what is needed, Right listen to them and ask them questions about, okay, well, where do you see a need for services and what type of services? So we kind of created our initial program. We looked at other programs in the area, what they offered, what they didn't offer. And then we went and we asked people, people that would be referral sources, people that were just based in the community. Um, what do you see is lacking here, right? We have our own ideas, but we don't want to be the people that come in and just open up and tell you how it's done. This is the right way to do things. You're doing things wrong, but really listen to what the community is telling you. Um, so we did that and we spent about a year doing that before we ever opened our doors. Um, and then we kind of created what we thought at least based on that information was what the community was looking for. Once we did that, it had a really good response, really good support from the community. And then as we grew and we, we brought on the residential piece, we increased clinical services we created this kind of comprehensive true extended care that was all based on community need um, and, and listening to the community and, and, and saying, you know, what do you guys, what do you guys think? What, what are we lacking here? Um, and that was, you know, th that's how we did it. Right. So it was really about engaging the community, but not just being a part, but really trying to be, you know, from that, from that understanding of like a life of service, where can we serve you? Where are you seeing, you know, gaps and barriers and issues uh, and then creating it from there that's really smart i really like that model i mean it's interesting that you guys started with the iop model because that's not so common but you're exactly right where it focuses you on the local community you know you're not going to bring in a lot of um iop patients from out of state most of the time and i love the fact i mean i'm an entrepreneur right and you go where the problems are and you fix those problems and so i love that you found out what the problems were first <laughs> and created yeah. a solution and we and we see that regularly now i mean and i i understand it right like i get it like the the understanding from a business perspective of is 
I mean, people don't seem to realize there's way more overhead with an extended care model than there is on an IOP. But I understand. You look, okay, well, if it's a PHP level, the reimbursements are higher. If we have the, the residential, we can get people, we can get more patients in because we can bring people in from out of state. Like, all that stuff makes sense. And we've had a number of people that have approached us for advice or that we've actually helped and given some, some you know, advice and guidance and direction in terms about opening programs. And, and we've we've gone from our own experience and we said that, right? Um, hey, this is how we did it. And every, almost every time the response is, yeah, but the, you know, there's not going to be that much financial gain from it. <laughs> and, you know, and I understand that, right? Like if you, you're like, oh, I want to open up a program. I'm going to, you know, you're an entrepreneur or you're a clinician and you're like, okay, I think I can do a really good program and there's a need, this, that, and the other. Yeah, you kind of want to go big, I suppose, or that's what it makes sense for whatever reason. But again, you're, you're kind of going in and saying, hey, this, this, this is a need when you don't really know if it is or not, right? I, I, and I don't, don't quote me on these numbers, but I heard in, in New Jersey last year, they, you know, the IOP with living, the PHP with living, there was like 1,800 new beds that have you know, opened up through different programs in that area. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's not. I, I don't know. Does it, it doesn't sound like they're filling a need, right? It's like it's like a, it's like friends of mine that I knew that that from recovery that were living in South Florida. And the idea was like I'm going to open up a treatment center here. Well, okay. Well, what are you doing differently than you know a thousand of the other places, right? Or the hundreds of places in Palm Beach County. You know, if you're going to do, you know, I know like for an example, I know certain programs that have opened there that have really specialized in certain things. That's great. Absolutely, I think that's great. You know, um, it's needed. We need more specialty programs nationwide in every state. But the idea is, well, I'm just going to open up a treatment facility in South Florida. Like, why? Yeah, it's a horrible idea. Right? right Where now, is anyway. the need? <laughs> and are you even serving that local community? Right? Um, what is the purpose? How are you? How are you going to differentiate yourself? What are you offering um, in terms of your services generally, as well as to serve that local community um, in a place that has so many facilities? Yeah. You know, um, it's just, a, and I, I suppose it's, it's just a different mindset, I guess. Um, but that's, that's kind of what we did. And we, we figured, you know, we looked at the landscape here. I'm from the local area. Um, I'd been through, a lot of them aren't around anymore, but I've been through a number of like the outpatient treatment facilities. And we looked at kind of what was available and we said, okay, well, we, one, have a different approach. Um, two, we believe that all levels of care should be as robust in terms of, of services as possible. And a lot of them were more of your you know, your basic intensive outpatients, right? Three days, three days a week, three hour groups, you know, that's, that's pretty much what it was. And we looked at it from, we believe that no matter what level of care it is, it should really be a robust programmatic um, stance that you take. So you're getting individual family, psychiatry, you know, medical, whatever, you know, group, obviously, like whatever that looks like, there should be a vocational piece or an academic piece. You need to have somebody identified that can work with your patients for that. Um, because it is, you know, that the, the basic IOP level of care is really not robust. Um, I think it's starting in different areas and certain programs are, are creating such, but it's really not customized. It's more of a, a generalized, you know, stance. And we just said, okay, well, we're doing something different. And we talked to people, you know, about it. And they were saying, well, my, my son, my daughter, or a therapist or a psychiatrist, well, I've sent people to this program and either I'm not getting collaboration, they're not getting, you know, 
they're not getting individual places or they're not really, you know, they're, they're only seeing a psychiatrist for five minutes for, for meds or whatever, whatever it looks like. Right. And we were like, okay, well that we can do that differently. Right. We can, we can offer something. Um, we can come from a collaborative standpoint for the local professional and clinical community of, of involving them in treatment. You know, if somebody's coming to our IOP, they can, and, and getting group individuals, you, they can, that therapist can still be seeing them, you know, and we can then collaborate on that. Um, so it was really just, again, it was really just listening to the community and, and seeing what they thought was needed. And, you know, so we've offered that experience to a lot of people and they're just like, well, it seems like a lot, but we're just going to do this, you know? Yeah. I mean, they just don't understand the business end of it. A lot of the time, you know, this, (laughs) this industry, I don't know, people say it's really unique. I mean, it's not unique, but, um, you still have to understand the ins and outs of the particular business models and why the past didn't work, you know, um, with the higher reimbursements and the lack of integration into standard healthcare and communities, um, all of those pieces are making people fail right now, right? It wasn't a long-term sustainable model. And what you guys are identifying or what you're talking about, Zach, is that to build a long-term sustainable model, you need to build it from the community up. You know, and you need to go and right. do a, a beds analysis, right, in a community and say, okay, well, Palm Beach County has, you know, 1,300 treatment centers. There's more beds than we need here. And even from a marketing perspective, you know, I, I don't know why people don't think about this, but, you know, you can run good local marketing from an SEO perspective, um, even multimedia for between 2,000 and 5,000, depending on the, the demographics, right, a month. But if you're trying to go national, I mean, you know how many more people you're trying to reach, right? I mean, you've got to be spending a right. minimum of $10,000 a month marketing minimum just to try to have a potential national presence because it's so much bigger. You know, I mean, it just makes sense, right? Bigger numbers, bigger spends. And so people don't think about that. They're like, well, there's money out there. Well, one, the money's not out there like it was. Um, Two, it's not as sustainable as it was. It's trending the other way. And three, you're going to have to have huge cash outlays in the beginning just to get started, um, which doesn't make sense. So I I like what you guys are doing in terms of stay small, build. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's that's the thing. It's, you know, from from an online or an SEO perspective is is where are we targeting, right? It's this this local area, right? Local area and uh, a little bit outside that, you know, that that region, basically. Yeah. what are, what are you doing in terms of, you know, and again, you know, it, it, it's also an understanding of quality um, from a business perspective, quality referrals, right? So can you get calls in from an SEO? Yeah. And my my personal opinion is your, your targeted marketing, your business development should really come from truly qualified referral sources, yes. right? Relationship right. building and so forth. And you, that should be supplemented by your online presence exactly. because that's where people, a lot of people... You know, a lot of people will find treatment online, obviously. Um, but those are going to be, again, those are going to be a lot more difficult cases a lot of the time to work because they're just calling in. You know, if you're coming, so our so our national presence or even our more of our regional presence is, is really dedicated to, you know, what I call strategic partnerships with facilities that we know are doing the right thing or doing really good clinical work that understand what we do and are and are good at identifying patients that work with us and we feel comfortable sending to them if that if patients need specialized services or a higher level of care. Same thing with our local community in terms of the, the clinical community, the psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, right? Um, identifying those people that understand what we do and are good at sending us patients and the ones that we feel comfortable when, when patients discharge or patients call up on the front end and say, oh, well, you know, you, you don't really need our services, right? You're, you don't really meet criteria. You don't seem to 
clinically need this level of care, but we can send you to people that really could help you from more on an outpatient or individual level. Um, and that should all then be supplemented online um, from the searches. So that's just kind of like the, 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 you know, the stance that we took. So we took kind of our community-based model in terms of marketing um, and outreach into the community, and we just kind of extended that to certain different places nationwide. And then that's all just been supplemented, you know, online. Yeah, that totally makes sense. You know, I mean, we're currently discussing working with um, Origins Recovery and, you know, you can make a national marketing campaign work for them because they have that trust, they have that reputation in the space nationwide, right? But if you're a Joe Schmo treatment center, you know, in Louisville, Kentucky that no one's ever heard of, running a national campaign is going to be really, really hard, right? I mean, really hard. Sure. So it just makes yeah, sense. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Origins is a very good example. They have locations in different areas, right? Each of those locations actually has, you know, they, they serve they serve the population, but like I know, for example, the Hanley in Florida has a very, very good older adult population, yes, right? Their specialty yeah. services. That is someone that could absolutely, and they have a national presence and to supplement it. But right, like for us, it's never made sense. Why, why am I, you know, spending money to market in, in California or Texas, you're right, online when now, as an example, Origins, you know, uh, Rick Hubbard is a very good friend that works at Origins. Like we have a relationship. Rick will call with potential patients for us, and we will call Origins for, for that are good clinical fits. Right, exactly. Right? Yep. Um, and that's from just that relationship building and having him come here and us going there and touring and meeting the clinical staff and meeting ownership or leadership or whatever the case may be, right? Um, and that's something that we've also taken in terms of with our relationships with facilities is, you know, if we refer somewhere, one, we have had to see them, but two, it doesn't mean that we have eyes on the facility because the facility can look great or look, you know, like crap. Amenities aren't treating addiction, right? <laughs> right. We want to meet the clinical staff and we want to meet the, the, whether it's ownership or leadership, depending on, you know, how that organization is structured to understand kind of where they're coming from. Right. Um, Cause it all rolls downhill. Yes. Um, I, I believe in this industry, you know, there's a lot of bad actors, but I really believe that, most of the time, your line staff and your clinical staff are really dedicated, caring people that are there to help, right? So most of the stuff starts rolling down from leadership and ownership of, you know, well, these are our marketing tactics. This is where we're going to cut. We're going to cut clinical services as opposed to our marketing budget. You know, whatever whatever the issue is, and you know that when you meet someone. So that's that's one of our things in terms of when we build relationships, like we need to know these people. And it's, you know, I don't want to tour from a business development person. That's yeah, great. I appreciate exactly. that. Right, but I want to have a sit down with your CEO. I want to have a sit down with your clinical director. I want to meet your clinical staff, and I want them to know us. Right, I want them to meet our leadership and our clinical team. Right, like that's that's the important piece. Um, and again, that's facilitating that business growth for for referral relationships. Um, and it, it 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 also falls in line with that transparency and trust of when we're referring someone. That that's a reflection on us. Right. Exactly. Right. If we if we refer someone somewhere, then that family is gonna you know, praise us or blame us, depending on how that experience goes, because it was our clinical recommendation. Yeah. You know, well, I love the fact that you said you have to meet with the leadership, you know, because I think of like Sovereign and Sovereign was not a great program at all. But there were many great people that worked there, right, especially on the low levels, um, because like you said, their hearts were in the right place and they just tried to they struggled with working there or they. Um, right. Tried to ignore it. I mean, a therapist that comes in, right? Like a, ther a, a, a social worker. And I don't know what people, I, you know, I know that we take the position of we really want to, you know, we, we do our best to pay as high as we can for our clinical staff because they're investors, right? We ask them to do a real, it's not a nine to five job. We ask them to do a ton, right? A ton of, 
of working with the identified patient, but also the family. And there's a lot of case management, and the, you're, it's a it's a whole thing. Um, so, but a lot of places, I don't know what they pay. But let's say they're they're not paying well, <laughs> their clinical staff, right? Like a, a, a social worker that's making forty thousand dollars a year is working there because she she or he cares, right? For the patients, they want to make a difference. They believe in helping to to enrich or save their life based on the, the issues that they're having. And a lot of the times they're handcuffed based on the, the decisions that have been made by upper management or ownership or leadership. Um, that That's where the issues come in, right? The Sure. I, do I think there's some rogue people in the industry that are doing certain things in facilities? Yeah, I think that, that, that comes with the territory. But most of the time when you get the patient brokering or the marketing contracts of send me this many people, right? Or you know, you know who knows about that? Ownership, mm-hmm. right? Or, or marketing leadership or whatever it is. They, they know it's occurring. You know, if it happens one time, if it happens here or there and an admission person gets a call from a broker and says, I can send you someone for, you know, $2,000, like, do they possibly go rogue and that's something the facility doesn't know about? Possibly. I don't know. Um, but the facilities that are, you know, again, the, the patient brokering issue, we want to keep blaming patient brokers. Most of these people are either people that, that aren't in recovery or are in early recovery that are getting huge sums of money, right? Um, we, we had a conversation yesterday. There was a – Sam, again, who's our executive director, there was a Facebook thing that he was – a group or something that he was part of. I don't know the details offhand, but basically a, a group was calling out this patient broker, and he reached out to them on the back end and said, hey, listen, why don't we have a conversation so I can kind of explain these things to you? And, and the guy actually called, which we give him credit for, Right. And he said, look, man, um, Sam said, this is why what you're doing is not just affecting you, but impacting the people that you're touching, their families, the industry as a whole, the insurance companies, the re- all this stuff is affected, right? Um, and the guy's response was, well, I'm 30 days sober, a single dad, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, and I'm, and these, this facility or these facilities, I'm making $150,000 a year on what they're paying me to send them patients, like, do I expect a guy with 30 days or 60 days or 90 days sober that doesn't have, you know, that has a high school diploma, you know, and no career to, to not do those things, especially when the people that are paying him to do it are telling him, hey, you're actually helping people, right? It sounds like a dream job for him, right? Um, so, like, that stuff happens. And when, we, when you talk about patient brokering and, and that whole thing, that stops when it comes to ownership and management and leadership saying we're not doing that anymore, those the, it's the facilities that are that are making that continue to occur yeah yeah i would totally right? agree so you know again that's where it comes down to when we when we when we partner with an organization in terms of like co-branding or doing events and educational stuff when it comes to partnerships in terms of like do we trust sending you patients that are clinically appropriate for you or that you're sending us patients that are clinically appropriate for us when it comes to looking at you know, uh, Sam and I, as, as business owners um, for a f- facility that's really young, have taken a really big stance on mentorship in this industry. And I mean, for us being mentored by, by people that have been here for years and doing the right thing, right? Um, and we have specific people that we reach out to and ask questions and say, "What is, is this? Is this right? Is this wrong? Is what do you think about this?" Right? Right? It's just it's just looking for guidance. Um, so, uh, as it relates to that, like we've taken that stance of like we. We want to know who's making the decisions in your organization. So when we're working with them in terms of any of those things, um, we know who you are and we know whether we're willing to work with you or not. 
Um, and I think, and I think I'm not, I don't know, but I think that's done really well for us in terms of reputation and branding and people understanding. And then the really good people are understanding the really good work that we do. Yeah. Right. And that's, that helps sustain in this industry. Yes. Yeah. Especially for the long term. you know, I'm all about collaboration, right? I talk about that a lot. And I think as a field, you know, what you're talking about is that's the way we need to move forward. There's so many opportunities for collaboration. You're not really in competition with people. Um, as long as you're smart about how you grow your business and differentiate no. in the right ways. And I mean, people to... talk about competition, but the, what are, I, don't, and I don't know the numbers offhand, but I know they said there's, you know, there's this many million people that meet criteria for, you know, that fall in the substance use disorder spectrum that meet criteria that need treatment, right? And only 10% of people are accessing services for whatever reason, right? And there's a number of variables of that, it, that, that, that why that's occurring. But the truth is, is that there's more than enough people that need help and only 10% of those people that need help are actually getting it. So there is no competition. I mean, from, from a general perspective, right? There are more than enough people and families and communities that are, that are being affected. Um, so the idea that we're in competition with one another is insane to me. Um, I'll t so we, we had, uh, there was an announcement that, that came out, I guess like two weeks ago. So we, we've entered into a, uh, a partnership, right, um, with Karen Treatment Centers, um, in their, you know, their Pennsylvania and Florida location. I think it's some, people, no, some people know who they are, maybe. <laughs> yeah. So, so, and 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 my wife and Sam um, are former employees of Karen, and we have a really good relationship with them. Now, there's no financial uh, investment, there's no ownership investment, and there's really uh, all that says, it, and the purpose of it was is. It's meant to be, and the idea is that it, we have this with Karen, but hopefully this is something that kind of other organizations do throughout the industry as well. It's a, it's a, it's a partnership that says that we are going to work together in these certain ways. And the reason that they did it is because they saw a value in helping us to some degree um, improve our services. We saw some services that they offer that we're just a small mom-and-pop operation, right? We're family-owned and operated. We don't have investors. Or we don't have the ability to, to grow and expand like that. Um, and services can be expensive. So like with, in terms of some of their, their collegiate success program, right, for our young adult population, and it's not just patients that, that they send us. It's any patient that comes through our doors are going to benefit from that, right? It's it's co-branding in certain things in terms of like, hey, these are facilities that work together. So families know that if they're getting this quality service here, they're going to get a similar quality service here in terms of the clinical services. There are some trainings that they're talking about that we're talking about in terms of co-training for our clinical staffs. So the understanding is if somebody goes to Karen and then somebody comes to Mark, the clinical services are going to be similar in terms of the approach, right? Um, it's just an understanding of like if this these the, the clinical staff there has been trained in this regard, and the Mark clinical staff has been trained in the same regard, right? It's it just makes sense, and it has nothing to do with you know it doesn't it doesn't mean you know we're only referring there. We clearly you know not everyone's appropriate for that, and they're clearly not just referring to us. But it benefits both patient populations, and it benefits both you know family populations and communities. And the idea is similar. We've had other conversations with other facilities about that in terms of how do we even though we're separate organizations, how do we create kind of the seamless continuum for patients that are coming and how do any patient that walked through any of our doors benefit from these types of relationships? Um, and, and I think that's kind of how it needs to go, right? So if somebody, you know, you say origin, somebody is at origins in Texas, right? And then origin sends them somewhere else. 
how do we know that that is going to be a seamless transition from facility to facility, and it's going to be a, a similar quality of clinical services and experience from facility to facility? And the way that's going to happen is a lot of, of is the collaboration, like you mentioned, and the working together of, of facilities to hold each other to these kind of standards of care, right? These business standards and practices, these standards of clinical care. Um, it's working together. It's not, you know, working in competition. We're not in competition with Karen or Origins or any of the local facilities down the street, right? We do certain things differently than they do. We refer to other IOPs, even though we have an IOP, right? Sure. Um, sometimes it's just a better fit, or they may have a specialist that specializes in something that we necessarily don't have. Um, how do you, the idea is how do you get the patient to, to, to what to the facility that can best treat their clinical needs. Yes. Um, and I think that has to be kind of at every, you know, the base of every decision that we're making in terms of like, you know, making, making it really patient-centered care in that regard. Yeah. I, I think from the business end, you know, it needs to be all about collaboration. And where that sometimes centers struggle is if they've made the poor business choice to build a center in an area with high competition. Like if you're building in South Florida or if you're building in um, Orange County or near Scottsdale, you know, it's a flooded, saturated market. And so then you get into these intense competitions. Well, that's because you made a bad dis business decision to build a center where there wasn't a strong need, you know. But once you are smart about where you're building your programs, you know, then collaboration is everything. And it goes back to that trust that we've been talking about, you know, this entire episode here where you, you'll see like the PE firms and the investors will look at like what you just said, like, oh, you know, there's 20 million people that need treatment in the States. You know, there's only about a million beds. So there's all this opportunity for growth. Well, not really. Right. Because you have to build trust. I mean, I know when I was in active addiction, right, I wouldn't have gone to most centers that reached out to me. I'm like, I don't trust these guys. Right. You have to build that trust. And so if you're collaborating with other centers, if you're involved in your community, if you're doing marketing in the right way, you will be able to build the trust that will be able to pull in, you know, some of that other 19 million. Um, but if you're just trying to, you're just assuming that other 19 million is looking for treatment, they're not, <laughs> right? I mean, most right. people in addiction don't want to get treatment, you know, so you've got to build the trust to, to make it worth their while to contact you or worth their while for their loved ones to contact you. You know, it's, it's the way that the whole field needs to work. Yeah, no, I agree. Absolutely. Well, we've we've had quite a great conversation here, Zach. I really appreciate it. Um, are there any final thoughts on your end, or anything you want to say that we weren't able to cover? Um, not. I mean, I think we covered a lot. Yeah. Right. Um, I certainly, uh, I certainly know that I can talk a lot, which is usually why I try not to do uh, <laughs> these things. It kind of goes off on a tangent a lot, um, you know. And I can unfortunately be known to be on a soapbox. Um, yeah, yeah. We all but no, do. No, I, I really think. I know. I think I, I really think, you know, I, I think um, I, 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 I do want to say that I think it's important that a lot of, you know, I have a lot of opinions on this and a lot of this is, you know, has, as you know, learning experience and growth and saying, OK, well, this is, you know, this has worked and this hasn't worked. And, and again, really learning from people that have come before um, and kind of, and you know, learning from their experience. Um, but I really believe I truly believe like you've been talking about in that collaborative piece. Um, it's really not about telling people this is the right way to do things or, or you're doing it wrong and we're doing it right or whatever it is, but it's really working together. And I think when facilities do that, right, if we put patients first and we work together in terms of creating the best experience and the best care and making the best business decisions uh, that we can and, and doing that, you know, 
with honesty and transparency, um, I think when we do that in a collaborative spirit, then a lot of the stuff that's going on in this industry will slowly fall to the wayside, right? Um, I think too many, I think it's a very ancestral industry. People know each other really well and you get the idea of, oh, well, I heard this or this facility is doing this. Oh, but I know him and he's, he's a good guy. And I've, you know, <laughs> I, I know him personally and that kind of, and we kind of don't hold each other accountable to that. I think it's also difficult um, to do that a lot of the times for people because people do know each other personally. Um, but I believe that it helps to hold people accountable when we make these kind of these kind of decisions and we live kind of the, by these by these standards and principles and we work together in collaboration. The rest of it kind of just goes off. People people that are doing the wrong thing really don't want to associate themselves with the people that aren't, right? Um, so we've kind of just taken that stance. But I, I, I really, you know, Nick, I really appreciate um, you know the conversation and, and uh, giving me the opportunity to kind of share share my experience and uh, a lot of opinions and, <laughs> and thoughts on it. I think it was great. So, I mean, Zach, if people want to reach out to you, how can they contact you? Um, so, uh, the website is www.marylandaddictionrecovery.com. Um, our phone number is 410-773-0500. And again, um, that's the main number, but again, we're, you know, we're family owned and operated. Our, our ownership is on site every day. Um, so we're, we make ourselves available and we, you know, we take calls and we share our experience. So um, uh, my email is znitzer at marylandaddictionrecovery.com also. Great. Well, everyone, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I think it was fantastic. Um, as always, uh, Recovery Executive Podcast is brought to you by Circle Social Inc., experts in strategic marketing and growth for treatment and behavioral health centers. You can find the podcast anywhere where podcasts are found for streaming or download, uh, TuneIn, Stitcher, iTunes, etc. So we thank you for joining us and looking forward to connecting with everyone next time.